Would you turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 2? Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we'll be starting in verse 22. God has just poured his spirit out on his church, and Peter is preaching to the people of Jerusalem, and he says these words. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. This is the word of our God. Eternal Father, tonight we come and we gather together to remember your perfect Son, that he came to earth, eternal and fully God, and walked the earth and lived the life that we could not. Father, help our focus to be on him tonight. Father, let us lay aside all outside and other issues and things and distractions and focus purely on your son, the one who is altogether lovely. May we remember his sacrifice and may we cherish it. Give us eyes to see the same Holy Spirit that you poured out on your church 2,000 years ago dwells in those of us who are in union with Christ, and may he now illuminate this scripture that we might understand and that we might better know you and your plan and what you have done for us. We beg this in Christ's holy name. Amen. I once heard of a theologian who claimed that Jesus did not know that he would be crucified. This guy said that Jesus thought that he would be installed as an earthly king, and throughout the story of the Gospels as they went along, that at some point he was going to be made the earthly Messiah like David was king of Israel. And it was this, this theologian wrongly claimed that Jesus only realized that he would die while he was on the cross, and that's why he said, Father, why have you forsaken me? But did Christ know that he was going to die? Did he know that it was God's plan, the Father's plan? What we can say at the outset is sincere students of Scripture, we can say, of course, Christ knew that he would die. Over and over, he would tell his disciples that he must suffer and die, and, but would rise again on the third day. If we remember our, our time in Mark, he, he repeatedly 
made that claim. And this evening, in our, our brief time together, we will see that Christ's sacrifice was the climax of our triune God's redemptive plan. At the beginning of the, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we see that the triune God of the universe is in complete control of history and that he is the driving force behind our salvation. We see that the Father planned and ordained the redemption of God's people. We see that the Son secured our adoption by his blood and that the Holy Spirit applies the Son's work to God's people. It's a triune work in which God is the driving force. And in today's passage, we find two aspects of the Father's plan of redemption. We see that in the Father's plan of redemption, Christ was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And in the Father's plan of redemption, Christ would be killed and crucified at the hands of lawless men. Now, we are not studying the book of Acts, so just a brief bit of context. Acts is a chronicle of the early church, and it is penned by Luke, the same Luke that wrote the Gospel of Luke. In fact, most theologians will refer to Luke-Acts as one book. Acts informs the reader how the church of Jesus Christ went from a small band of Jewish disciples in Jerusalem and expanded throughout the Mediterranean region. How God took his church and expanded it through all of the known world, the Roman Empire, and how he sovereignly added people to its ranks from every tribe and every nation. God had just poured out his spirit, as we've already said, as Peter is preaching this sermon. And the people of Jerusalem think that the disciples are drunk because of this. And Peter begins to preach. He begins to preach the word. And we see that he says to them, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So the first thing we see is that in the Father's plan of redemption, Christ was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The redemption of mankind was not a reactionary decision on the part of our triune God. It is not as though God is playing whack-a-mole with his creation, trying to figure out what to do, but this was planned before the foundation of the world. And in his sermon, Peter does not relieve the crowd of their guilt. And Peter perfectly balances God's sovereignty and human responsibility in this sermon, as we will see. But the first element we see in, this, in this, this part of the verse is that Christ's crucifixion was a definite plan. All of the texts of Luke and Acts spe that speak of Christ's suffering every single time point to the idea that it was planned by the Father, according to Daryl Bach. When the Bible speaks of Christ's coming in the flesh, it says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Christ's coming was a step in God's plan. And the Bible says that Christ was killed 
according to the plan of God. So we see another step in that plan is Christ's crucifixion and God's plan to redeem his people. From Genesis 1 until the end of time, we find a holy God who is sovereign and directing his creation. He has a plan. God is not a semi-divine being that is reacting to his creation, but he is one who directs his creation. Proverbs 21 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord, and he directs them wherever he wants. Until the end of time, God is bringing his plan about. The second element we see, though, is that Christ's crucifixion was according to the foreknowledge of God. The word foreknowledge is interesting because sometimes when people see it, they mistakenly believe that God's foreknowledge is a passive attribute. They merely, that God can merely see into the future. That he can merely see what is going to happen. These people believe that he has a crystal ball or maybe he got into his DeLorean and zoomed to the future, but he cannot mess with it. But J.I. Packer states that God's foreknowledge is no mere spectator sport. He writes that we could also say that God foreloves his people before they are born. And God foreappoints events to come to pass. David, as we will see on Sunday, merely foresaw that the Christ would rise. But God foreknows. And knowing in the Bible is so much deeper than mere cognitive ability. What does God say to Israel? You only among all the nations of the earth have I what? Have I known? It's not merely that there were some families or some nations on earth that God didn't know about yet and he was yet to discover. But is that he had set his love uniquely on Israel and only they he knew. Everything was done according to the foreknowledge of God, and God directs his creation. Packer goes on to say, though it is true that human beings are free in the sense of being self-determined, none are free from God's control according to his eternal purpose and foreordination. Friends, the church, the end of time, all the, the events we see in Revelation, they are set. They are sure. They are unchanging. According to a holy and a sovereign God. The will of creation can never overcome the plan of a sovereign God. And Peter's sermon at Pentecost showcases the fulfillment of this promise by the holy creator of the universe to send forth his son to die for the sins of man. God does what he says he'll do. And the redemption of mankind was not a reactionary decision on God's part. It was planned before the foundation of the world. Second, in God's plan of redemption, Christ was crucified and killed at the hands of lawless men. Look with me at the end of verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed 
by the hands of lawless men. Despite the fact that God planned the crucifixion, Peter does not relieve the people of their responsibility, of their guilt. And again, Peter perfectly balances God's sovereignty and human responsibility, and he tells the crowd, you are responsible for killing God in the flesh at the hands of lawless men. That doesn't merely mean that they were uh, like some sort of vagabonds or, or, or barbarians or whatever. Lawless men, the Romans, are those who do not have the Mosaic law. So in other words, he's saying you who say you are Israel, that you are God's chosen people, you handed God in the flesh over to lawless men. Didn't even kill them yourselves. When we think about the crucifixion of Christ, we see that God in the flesh, perfect and altogether lovely, was beaten with a whip. And this was no whip like you buy on vacation in a souvenir shop. It had bits of bone and things in it that would rip the flesh and expose internal organs. He was made fun of and jested at by flagrant sinners. He had a crown of thorns pressed into his head. He was made to carry a heavy cross member of the cross to the point where he would be crucified. God in the flesh had railroad spikes driven into his wrists, rendering his hands useless, into his ankles, so that he would have to press up against the railroad spikes driven into his flesh just to breathe. You know, when we think about the cross, when you read in the Old Testament, the majority of the time they are not talking about strangulation when they talk about hanging someone. You know, we grew up with Westerns. We think a noose when we think of hanging. But when the Bible says, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree, or when they say, if you do this thing, they will pull a beam out of your home and hang you on it, they're meaning it will be whittled down to a sharp point and you will be impelled upon it and left there all day. Why do I talk about that? Because the Romans came along and thought that was too nice and invented the cross that Christ was crucified on. Here we see the universe flipped. God in the flesh is whipped and brutally killed by a rebellious creation. A total inversion. The ultimate injustice. We live in a day where we think if someone does something unkind to us on Facebook, that we've been done unjustly. And here the creator of the universe is mocked and brutally killed by his own creation, those who should have worshipped him. But Christ was not killed without purpose. Because on the cross, Christ bore all of the wrath of the Father that you and I deserve. In the Old Testament, before we can understand Christ's atonement, we must understand forgiveness in the Old Testament. Sin or rebellion against a holy God, merits the death penalty. 
Remember, the penalty depends on how big a person you offend. Not long ago, I watched a documentary where they they illustrated this well, and I'm totally going to rip this illustration off, but they said, if I take a rock and go out to a junkyard and I scratch an old rusty car, someone might say, what are you doing, you weirdo? Get out of here, but no one will really care. If I walk up to the landing and scratch your car with a rock, you'll probably call the police. But if I go to a Lamborghini dealer and run my keys down the side of that Lamborghini, well, my penalty just got a lot higher. In the same way, when you offend a holy and a just God, it is not the same as offending your neighbor. And when we offend a holy and a just God, the penalty is death. Sin necessitates sacrifice in the Old Testament. Blood must be shed to receive God's forgiveness. That, my friends, is how serious sin is. That gossip you think nobody knows about? That website you look at late at night when you think no one knows? Those numbers you fudge on your income tax? Sin. We may not like it, but in God's economy, when you rebel, when you break His law, something must die in your place because you have thumbed your nose at the Creator of the universe. You say, well, I don't like that. Will you only prove your rebellion by that statement? Because in the Old Testament sacrificial system, an unblemished animal had to take the offender's place, would have had to take my place. I would bring the unblemished animal, and my sin would be transferred to it, and it would be slaughtered in my stead. And by this, God's righteous wrath would be satisfied. Sin would be cleansed, and fellowship with God restored but only for a time. Only for a time. Because the blood of bulls and goats could never save our souls. It is not permanent. And Jesus Christ accomplishes in reality what all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament accomplish in type. And we cannot understand the cross of Christ until we understand the Old Testament. At the cross of Christ, we see both the love and the wrath of God. God's wrath against sin burns hot as he pours out the justice we deserve on his own son. Isaiah says that Christ was bruised for our sin, and it pleased the Father to crush him. The cross is proof that a holy God will not tolerate our evil. However, God's love is also on display in that he did not leave us to perish. He did not leave us on our own. But in his great love, he took our debt on himself. He sacrificed his son. He took my sin on himself, my debt on himself and sacrifice his son. Think Matthew 18, the unforgetful or the unforgiving servant. This holy and just God gave his son for you and I that we might have redemption and restoration. And the cross of Christ liberates God's chosen people. Romans lays this out for us. The cross 
liberates us from God's wrath. Romans 5.9, we are justified by Christ's blood and saved from the wrath of God. Second, we are liberated from bondage to guilt and sin. Romans 6, we have been crucified with Christ and set free from sin. Third, we are liberated from trying to keep the Mosaic law. Romans 7, you have died to the law. And fourth, liberated from death. Romans 8, 2, the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Christian, if you are here and you are in Christ, you are liberated from God's wrath. You are liberated from bondage to guilt and sin. You are liberated from the Mosaic law, and you are liberated from death, all because of God's great love, that he would send his son to die in your stead. I mean, you don't have to go far for an illustration. Sarah will tell you that I, we watched a lot of BBC, and I absolutely hate the scenes where someone's awaiting execution. It's gut-wrenching. I'd rather jump out of airplanes in the enemy territory than watch that stuff. And imagine you're waiting to, to hang or to be strapped in an electric chair, and, and the moment is coming when you're going to go, and they pull you out and say, this guy's going to go instead. Because of God's great love, Christ took your place on the cross. That's why we call it Good Friday. I forgot who posted that today. And Christ was delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. And Christ was crucified and killed at the hands of lawless men. Friend, do you have that assurance today? Has your sin been atoned for? There is no reason to walk out those doors and not turn to Christ on this Good Friday. Have you been cleansed of your iniquity? Has your rebellion been pardoned? Do you wonder why you have not been liberated from those sins? Now, obviously, we don't preach perfection. You will never hear me preach perfection. But if you're sitting in here and you're 70 years old and you still gossip like you're 21... If you're sitting in here and you claim to have become a Christian 15 years ago and you're still online porn watching or cheating or lying or stealing, then friend, do what the Bible says and evaluate yourself to see if you're in the faith. If you're not, it is my earnest, sincere hope that you will turn to Christ now that you will cast yourself on him, the one who died in your stead, because he is your only hope, because there is wrath waiting. God will not tolerate evil, not mine, not yours. He is your only hope. Tonight, turn to him and from your sin. And if you are in Christ, tonight is a solemn night, but it's also a comforting night that God in the flesh came according to the definite and unchanging and perfect plan of a holy God and took our sin, restored our fellowship, liberated us from the law, that we can pray and, and talk with a holy creator of the universe. So tonight as we 
leave this place after the, the final song, you will be dismissed. Just like last year, I encourage you to leave here in a solemn state. One of the things I love about our church is the fellowship. One of the things we talk regularly about is all the kids running and playing. If that happens, it's okay. I'm not going to like send out a nasty email. But I do encourage you, no matter what, to go home tonight and think about the crucified Christ. Because that will make Sunday all the more sweeter. Holy God of heaven, Lord, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we pray tonight that we would see Christ, that we would reflect on his saving work, that we would consider seriously our sin, and that we would turn, turn from sin and turn to him, all for his glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.